Welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Dang, that was all official-like and everything. That was pretty sweet. That was nice. Yeah. It it don't. I mean, I I had this thing here for probably mm, a year and a half, and just looked at it. And then I got some people that know how to do this stuff, or more importantly, have the time to read directions. And next thing you know, boom, we have got a podcast deck. That's pretty awesome. It is. So my guest today, Chris Duncan. Chris is uh, an Iowa. Or Iowa native. That's right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So Chris is from Iowa too. Uh, works with GSM Outdoors because you were with Muddy. Bef- you were with Muddy when GSM Outdoors bought Muddy, which is pretty cool for me because I've got someone close by. So uh, when it comes to whitetail prep, you're my go-to. Which is, well. <laughs> which is awesome. Um, I had Chris here today because we were working on kind of a little tutorial video and a, a product review of the new fusion cam from stealth cam. And this thing is super awesome. And it's like, it's the end of June. And right now is really when I start to prep for whitetail stuff. So I thought it'd be a perfect time to, to get you on and one talk about cameras, because honestly, just like this podcast deck, a lot of times what slows me down or prevents me from doing my game cameras to the full potential is just not really understanding them and knowing them and going through that stuff. And, and honestly, I've learned a lot of, a lot through you and also through Ben, um, who is kind of at the main office down in Texas. Ben, I've known Ben since, you know, several jobs ago for him, probably, gosh, I, I almost, I, I still lived in Wisconsin then. It's been a long time, but um, both of you guys have really helped me advance my scouting, I guess, and my, I don't know, my recon, so to speak. So are you, well, I looked at your phone. Right now you're ramping up too, right? Oh yeah, we're getting ready. And now we've, we've been, I usually don't put cameras out too much. Yeah, I usually yeah. wait till like that mid-July to late July time frame. Uh, just because their racks are more developed. Yeah. We've been doing so much testing with these new cell cams that, you know, I've been running cell cams now for six months and doing firm, firmware updates on them. And the engineers who are developing them are sending me new firmware. And we finally, you know, just two weeks ago launched them. So it's pretty exciting. Dude. And I have to say, I've had cellular type cams many times in the past. And it seems like worked awesome for like a month or until the batteries got low or batteries died. And then all of a sudden just seemed like it kind of started to go down the toilet from there. But these new ones, I mean, just so everyone out there knows, again, I'm not huge on reading directions. Um, but dude, out of the package, the freaking SIM card, because the SIM cards have always been the biggest pain in the butt for me. SIM cards are already internal. Mm-hmm. So you add batteries, you put in um, your SD card and download the app. All you have to do is, you know, whichever platform you're on, download the new app, which is um, Stealth Cam Command. And then when you open the app and you log in, create your, your login from there, When you go to add a camera, all you do is scan the QR code that's on the inside of the camera, a brand new camera when you open it up, and it just lets you name the camera, set all the settings that you want, and then from there, um, you also get to pick the service, and you guys have some awesome rates and everything already negotiated for that, and also you've got... um, Let's see, it's Verizon, AT&T, and then there's a global one too, so it works for my all my Canadian buddies. Um, but dude, about as foolproof as you can get, and honestly, 
Well, for as much as your Snapchat goes off with your phone, this is, (laughs) if people sign up for notifications, um, and you're, and you have some decent bucks on your property or whatever else you're wanting to look at, this thing will go next level. You'll be getting notified like crazy. Yeah. I turned my notifications off actually for the cell cams, (laughs) but no, it's pretty cool. You know, when we were developing this camera, because we've been in the cell cam market now for for a while and you know i'll even admit the previous versions of cell cams just the setup was such a pain in the butt and even once you got it down you know you could get one set up in 10 or 15 minutes but for someone who'd never ran one before it was it was fairly tedious there was a lot of steps involved and we knew if we wanted to reach everybody and and give them a product that basically anybody could utilize and something simple everybody wants Everybody wants something now. They want it quick and they don't want to go through a million steps. So we took all of that work out of it. And like you said, you when you go to purchase the camera, you either pick Verizon or AT&T. Has nothing to do with your cell provider. Has nothing to do with that. You just want to pick between those two or global, you know, depending on where you're at. But you'll pick between those two, um, purchase the camera, camera, you know, shows up or you buy it from a retailer. And then you talk, talk them through the steps. I mean, it's literally after you set the first camera up and you put your payment info in yep. every camera after that, you can, you saw it, you can have it set up in a minute. Yeah. So, and on your, and on your app. So it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. I'm a big, um, I'm a big advocate of using my game cams for Turkey season too. And I've, I've written about it and I've posted about it and some people, you know, I know people like to just run and gun when it comes to turkeys, but for me, I have, and I do love doing that. Don't get me wrong, but I also like to be where turkeys are. And then my hunts are better because the amount of times where I've gone out, heard a turkey gobbling off the roost, flies down, comes right to the decoys. That's, I mean, that is a low percentage. That's that's like saying how many times I've gone out, set up a decoy, rattled my antlers together, and, and the buck I want just comes out and I get them, you know. It's happened, but it's a very, very low percentage time that that happens. But what I do want to be, I want to be in the area where what I'm going after is there. You know, it's a lot like if you go out west, you know, guys spend a lot of time glassing and knowing exactly which valley or you know which little cradle out there in that terrain that those early season muley bucks are are bedding for the shade or you know where they're going from really from that shade their daytime shade to feed and then back and then if you can be in that transition area then you're in an opportunity area and like my muley last year opening day or opening week of uh mule deer season in utah they knew um the guy that was guiding for me mort spent a lot of time just doing recon and he just said they're feeding down there somewhere in the mountains down there you know it could be several ridges but he said you know they work up through this is the water where they really like to hit and they're normally hitting it in the dark because he said by the time it's getting sunlight you can see them moving out of that little valley where the water is they're going over this saddle and they're going down deep into those willows where we're not going to be able to find you know we're not going to be able to find or aspens where we're not going to be able to find them because it's just too thick and so that's what we did we just we were in the strike zone or that transition zone when we needed to be there and it took three days for the interception to happen, but we were in the right spot when it comes to turkeys, same thing, like being there, knowing that. And then when it comes to whitetails, um, I honestly don't hunt that much. I know people see that I'm out a lot, but when it comes to how many times I really pick to choose like my time to strike, especially here in Iowa, I'm, I feel like I'm very efficient with time and my efficiency comes from recon because I'm not out there a lot, but I'm out there doing recon with cameras. And, um, honestly, now that this is so easy, it gives you the ability to not put as much of an imprint too, cause you're not having to go check that thing. You know, if you put something out 
or say you put multiple ones out and say, I know my buck's within this 300 acres, but is he sticking to timber? Is he doing travel corridors or is it hitting one of these food sources? And then all of a sudden, if you narrow that down and just say, he's been there twice, two times in a row, obviously if you got the wind right and if your approach is right, you can make that, you know, try to make that happen quick. And if it doesn't work out, at least from my point of view, bounce out, get out of there before you lay, you know, lay too much of an imprint. And my success just really has gone way up since I started hunting that way. Yeah, man, that's the, one of my favorite things about the cell cams is just the most recent information and knowing when to go and, and when not to go and going back to your, your, uh, when you're talking about turkey hunting, I've used cameras before for turkeys, but not, not a lot. So it was interesting because this spring, you know, we'd been testing, testing a lot of these cell cams. Yep. So I was putting them up all over the place and strut zones and whatnot. And I have a buddy, he's a, uh, he's a police officer in Cedar Rapids, doesn't get a ton of time to hunt, but he always comes down four season and he called me and, um, he goes, Hey, I, I can't hunt Friday morning, but he goes, I can be down there Friday afternoon. I go, Okay just you know that'd be perfect um he showed up anyway like at two o'clock in the afternoon he's ready to go i'm like dude i pulled up the stealth cam app i'm like there's been a bird almost every afternoon it's after five o'clock though he's been in this field yep and it was he was almost in amazement and it sounds so scripted but we walked out there i left the office at four we parked the truck like at 4 15 set a blind up and i did not even touch a call like we're sitting there you know talking he's one of my good buddies and he looks over and he's like, there's a Tom. And I pop open, you know, I glance out the window and there's a Tom just strutting 80 yards and we didn't even touch a call and he saw the decoys and he strutted right in. So <laughs> The evening hunts, in my opinion, are the most predictable when that happens. On my place, I, I have a, kind of a, a roosting area where it's, you know, there's a lot of um, walnuts and stuff, bigger walnut trees where the birds really like to roost. And they kind of pitch down. And honestly, they, they go like 360 degrees out of there in the morning. So it's it's very hit or miss whether you're successful on a morning hunt. And then after that, they kind of filter through a lot of different farm ground. But for whatever reason, before they come to the roost, they always come on kind of a higher ridge and they filter right down that and they stage in this, you know, I pretty much call it my fly up plot because it's a, it's a little one acre clover plot that I put right at the bottom of this little rise where they seem to always like stage there and kind of mess around. And then they all just start flying up. They, they start running and they fly up from there. And it's the same thing. I've told people after, you know, if I've let people hunt, hey, after 5.30, just be down there. Don't don't feel like you have to call and do a whole bunch of stuff. The birds are there. Like, they're there. Just be there, and they'll, they'll come in and naturally do their thing. And even though it's not traditional turkey hunting where you're getting to call them and they come in and all that, you still get the show, but more importantly, you get success. And it's from having the knowledge base of what they're doing there. Now, the cool thing about what you were showing me on your phone, when you open the app, like you said, okay, check it out. Here's like the last seven days. And it showed you a chart, you know, pretty much like a chart of when your pictures were being taken. And you just, you know, you said, look, like yesterday, I would say 90% of your pictures were within a one hour period between 4.30 and 6 o'clock. But like from from 5 or maybe from 4.45 to 5.45, it was a very clear peak inside of that hour. And for people who can't hunt a lot, you know, I've said, you know, these, you know, I, last year I called it a, a, a working man's whitetail experiment where... I only went out from nine to, I think I did nine to two every day, or maybe it was nine to three. And that's the only time I hunted. And I utilized um, different recon that I had from cameras of where, what spots are one, 
having activity during those times, but also what spots don't necessarily have something there between daylight and that time, because that's the other thing. If you have limited time for hunting, your entrance and your exit are so important. Like they're so valuable. And if you're a first time hunter, I can tell you one of the most important things to success, even more so than knowing how to hang a stand or where to put a stand is having some type of intel that says, if you're here before this time, you're not going to mess up your hunt. If you exit at this time, you're also not going to mess up your hunt because, you know, especially mature deer, whether you're even wanting a mature doe, you know, or, or especially a mature buck, they respond to pressure and you having to, to walk in and bump them out of there, the likelihood of you staying there long enough for stuff to filter back is, is pretty minimal. So it's such an important, just, I don't know. It's like a, it's a principle to hunting, you know? Yeah. And I think that's when I talk to people about killing big deer, my philosophy is the easiest deer to kill is a deer that doesn't know he's being hunted. Yeah. Oh yeah. Once they figure out that you're after him and they get bumped a few times or they wind you, then, you know, he's, he turns into a different animal. Oh yeah. And, um, that's, that's the beauty of, you know, you know, made a few good points about that photo tracker. That's part of the stealth cam app, um, is that you can use it to really analyze your photos before, you know, you'd get the, the, the trail camera photos and you'd look at the, at the date and the time. And I remember back in the day, you know, like you'd write down, okay, this buck mm-hmm. was here at this time. And, you know, you'd go through it and you'd have all these notes and you'd be tracking all that. But now it's like, it's built right in. Yep. So you can, and, and the affordability of these cameras, that's one thing we wanted to do was back when cell, even a few years ago, cell cams were pretty expensive. So especially ones that had that, yes. no, no question. And when you bought two or three of them, I mean, <laughs> that's a big deal. And yeah. that, now the price point on these have dropped so far that they're the same price point of a, of a regular trail camera. Mm-hmm. So I feel like we're going to see a huge switch in the next two to three years of people as long as they have reception switch into these cameras and then the apps have came so far like i'm so impressed with with the new version of the stealth cam command app just based off of a year ago our old app yeah and um they can tell you so much um by looking at that photo tracker and you can do one day you can do seven days you can do a month you can do a year and it'll compile all that info boom right there for you and you take and you know utilize it the way you want to you want to utilize it when do you personally like to do most of your like stand and location prep so if it's a farm that i've had years of hunting Mm -hmm. i'm pretty confident on what those deer are doing yeah and um those are areas where you know after a few years can really fine tune certain stand locations and we still try to keep the pressure really low on them um, but I'm getting to the point now where I like to jump around a lot <laughs> and I like to, um, we've got, you know, we're pretty lucky. I was telling you the story about some ground. I just got permission to hunt. Yeah. Got lucky on that. But, um, there's farms can switch so much from year to year as far as number one, if there's even a deer that you want to pursue on it. Um, but possibly even the movement based off crop rotations, based off yeah. neighbor pressure. So I feel like by utilizing we, we we do rely a lot on our cameras to tell us what's going on and then i like to walk in and i like to be portable and mobile and hang and hunt and catch deer off guard yeah and yeah I, I mean i do like that too it gets harder when especially me i self-film a lot and self-filming just it like you're doubling gear so it gets really hard to do that but i do i do like to get it done early enough to where it seems like in the middle of the summer big bucks they know they're not being hunted during that time so it seems like if you go out and you kind of bump something during that time they kind of get it it's once that velvet's getting dry and especially once bachelor groups break up then they know like okay time's getting close so i really don't want to be doing things during that time of year um but i also if you do it too soon then you like especially if you're trimming 
you know, mm-hmm. or if you hang a stand and there's a lot of growth period for those trees, you know, you can have, you can have extra pressure on a strap or something to where maybe it'll start to make noise because now it's kind of binding. So I normally like to get out there about the end of July and just really have stuff fine tuned and totally done uh, before the mid of August. And a lot of times what I do is, um, you know, here in the Midwest, I've always done my fall food plots as close to the end of July as possible. And hopefully within the first three weeks of August, just based on rain. And for me, I'll normally go out um, early August, which right now we actually just did this. I went out in a couple fields that I need to, to replant. I went out and sprayed them. So I'm letting, you know, the roundup kill them, kill that stuff off. And, uh, right now it's pretty much killed, ready to burn. And I'll go out there while all the other grass around it and, you know, growth around it's really green. I can burn that field off. And then I'll normally go in and kind of hit it with a light disc or a light till and then just kind of let it just start to grow one more time and then you can either you can either hit it again with just another light roundup and then plant immediately or a lot of times when those start I'll actually do like a broadcast um, seeding and then I'll just drag the heck out of it and any of that new little weed growth that started you just kind of uproot it and it it's kind of done then, you know, you've already let that seed bed start to grow. And before it can build a root that's deep enough and, and hardy enough to like stay, you pretty much uproot it and it's done. And then, um, I really like to try to do that right as close as I can to a rain that's coming. Um, one of the things that I like about going in, doing a burn down now, doing a light disc or a till is that ground is still pretty much, you know, it's pretty much movable, pliable. Um, so then what I'll do right before I plant or when I plant is I'll put my fertilizer down first, then my seed, and then I'll drag it, you know, and, and for me, I'm planting, I'm planting oats, turnips, um, let's see, well, I'll do buck forage oats. I'll do turnips. Sometimes I'll do like a rapeseed and then, um, and like a tillage radish is normally what I'll do. And I'll also add, um, a clover in there, which I'm not really planning on hunting during the fall because a clover won't really, you know, flourish by then, but it establishes its root base. And then in the spring, all that clover comes up perfect for turkey season. And it also, you know, lets the deer graze on it all the way through the spring into the summer. And then once I do exactly what I'm saying right now and till it in, um, that clover, you know, there's a lot of nitrogen in clover and it turns in and the nitrogen does really well with, you know, with your turnips and oats. So it's a, a really cool rotation that I do. Um, but I do like to get that done by mid August if I can and from there, um, when I'll do that plot, I'll normally leave the tractor running and do my other stand. You know, if I need to clear some stands out, I'll clear my stands out. I'll always, um, I'll always replace the the lineman. You know, the safety line. If for some reason I had left it out through the year, I'll replace that and uh, make sure there's a bow hanger in there. Make sure there's a backpack hook. Double check everything. Bring that. Um, that carabiner all the way down to the bottom, make sure it's there for me come season. And then normally as soon as that's done, that's when brand new card, brand new batteries, like regardless, really regardless of what my cameras say, brand new camera, brand new batteries, brand new car or brand new card, brand new batteries. And that spot is not going to be touched unless I had to go pull a card. That spot, is not going to be touched until I know it's time to hunt it, you know, for some reason. And honestly, now with the ability to just check on the app, you really don't have to go in there at all. If your batteries are good and if your card still has space on it, dang, you're, 
you're freaking good to go. And then normally when I would go in there to hunt it for my first time in the past, I would always carry a card reader with me. You know, I'd, I had our little bot plug-in card reader and I'd get in the tree or on my way into that stand, I would normally try to pass a camera so I could pull the card, take a new card out of my pocket, put it in there so that I know now there's a fresh card down in this area and I'm not going to have to come back in to get it. And then I would go up in the tree, plug my, my card in and I'd turn my screen all the way down. And while I'm waiting for the sun to come up, I'm just like starting on the newest photo first and just swiping back. And then all of a sudden, you know, being like, Oh dang, there's, there's a freaking buck here. You know, normally it's after seven o'clock or after nine or, or, you know, worst case scenario, you just keep swiping and you're like, there has not been nothing here. (laughs) That's never fun when that happens. (laughs) Yeah. That's like a downer. Yeah. I always carry an extra card in my backpack. Um, it's one of the things that's in one of the small zippers on my backpack because I feel like anytime you're going by a camera naturally, like don't make an extra trip into your spot. When you go by that camera, replace that card and take it back and, and look at it. And once you've looked at it and saved what you want to, you know, wipe that sucker clean, put it back in your backpack that night. And now, you know, whatever you decide to do the next day, you have the ability to repeat that same process. Yeah. I think, I think that's a good point. And, um, one, one thing I was going to ask you is we're now that we're talking about deer hunting, you killed two really big deer last year, didn't you? Or was it one? You killed a nice deer last year, right? Yeah, I killed three in Iowa. You killed three. Mm-hmm. So what's it looking like this year for you as far as big deer go? Well, I haven't got cams out yet. Um, but I do know from like this time of year, if I'm out, it's mainly clover maintenance. So like right now, I'm really trying to mow any clover before it flowers, you know, just trying to knock the tops off clover, keep it coming back really good. Anytime I see a stretch of rain coming, I'll go out and just try to get that clover hit. And I've certainly seen one buck that I know is promising, but um, I really don't know right now because last year was a, was a, devastating year in this area i mean i don't know what it was like you're 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 to the east of where where i hunt a lot and i hunt like i actually hunt like three different areas that are all within a, a probably 30 minutes of each other and what's weird is you know 30 minutes as the crow flies is probably 20 miles but there were very spotty like some areas deer definitely died hard for me hd like got hit really hard and my main farm got hit really hard and there was really only two bucks there that i was um willing to go after and uh, one of my buddies from france Antoine, had waited a long time to draw a tag and he drew one so i honestly did not hunt my main place until he came first and um and then he got his buck and then literally he, you know, he got his buck that morning and then I relocated over there and that's where I shot the buck for the, uh, the workers whitetail experience was, was there. Now the other bucks were 20 miles away, you know, in a different spot, which was a lot like normal Iowa hunting where if you go out at, if you go out on a food source in the evening during the right time, and by that I mean this is late October, you know, I saw a lot of deer. You know, I saw a, a, I saw a lot of deer, and I would see a rack buck probably every night. Not necessarily have a shot opportunity, but I would see one. And then after a few days hunting when all the conditions were right, um, I got my first deer there. And then I kind of just left everything quiet until he came and then he hunted and he got his that morning and I kind of relocated down to that, to the other farm. And, and that's the buck that I ended up shooting for that experiment, you know, which is honestly kind of weird because in the summertime, that buck was about a mile and a half away from where I shot him that, 
that morning. But when I came in that morning, he was and got out of my truck. You know, it's like broad daylight and I'm starting to walk to my stand. When I came in and then went around the corner, he was there on a doe and I'm, you know, they busted out and they're gone. And I just thought, oh, well, I'm sure that's him, but I definitely just bumped him. And then he ended up coming to the horns like within a few minutes. So it, it worked out, but it definitely could have been sketchy, but he definitely wasn't where I would have assumed he was. He had already covered a lot of ground, but it was like later in the first week of November. So obviously they can do that during that time. We've furthest we've ever killed one that we had photos of was uh, six point miles away. Yeah. Well, I, um, that, that bigger one that I shot when you were at the house and you asked me about the big one, that buck was seven miles away. Like I've, someone had pictures of that buck seven miles from the farm that I got him on. And what happens is again, it's just pressure. Uh, I ended up the people that had a lot of like, like summertime history with that buck, it was obvious that they saw him and they're like, holy cow, this is like the first, maybe, I don't know if it was the first buck, but it was a buck that was knocking on, you know, a 200 inch door. And so I personally feel like from the amount of pictures and stuff that they were showing me, because when I killed him and posted it, they actually called the warden and told the warden, we think, we think this buck got, you know, he came and shot this off our place. And, you know, little do they know, normally whenever I shoot something big, the first person I call is my warden. I'll call, I'll call the warden and be like, Hey, I just got one. You want to come in with me and I'll let them come in and, you know, come on in and see the freaking situation, do the track job with me. Because at least from my point of view, and especially like being in the, you know, in the light all the time, um, it's just it's a smart insurance policy for me. You know, I just, a lot of times I let my warden see my spots. Honestly, I mark all my spots for him. This is like a safety protocol. Um, so my warden knows all of my stands, every single stand location. And I always, um, text him and my wife where I'm going that night. So if I'm not back, you know, Shaz will be able to say, you know, Hey, Hey, you know, John's not back and he at least knows where I, where I, where I was, you know, and I think it's a smart safety protocol for anybody out there, but, um, I don't know that those, those bucks can move and that buck, I think had felt so much pressure for them wanting pictures, putting spots. And honestly, like they probably hunted, um, I shot them at the end that towards the end of October and I know they had been hunting them hard. And I think they probably went in opening day, didn't see him just kept going, kept going. They probably relocated stands. They probably tried a new stand, you know, they probably kept, you know, and then once he kind of maybe became nocturnal, started checking cameras more, you know, these are all the things I've seen my friends do. They're, they're the things I did too. When I was, you know, in my, teens and twenties and, you know, see my first ever Pope and young deer on a, on a camera back then, like a very primitive style camera, um, you know, sucking like eight D batteries a week or whatever they did back then. <laughs> and I've made the same mistake. You get overexcited, you put in too much pressure and I don't know. I just think with, uh, with, with hunting mature animals, regardless hunting smarter and less is more is such a valuable approach. I agree completely. And I think knowing when the right time to strike is huge. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you hunt less, but you hunt the wrong time, it's not going to help you much, but, um, yeah, it's a, there's certain times where it could happen and it's a long shot. Like it's pretty rare that I hunt during the opening week. Um, now if I had a deer, uh, that was hitting like a food and, and food sources are really good during our opening week, but we don't open until the 1st of October here in Iowa. So this is a lot different than it's actually a lot different than when I was just across the border in Wisconsin. Cause we would always open like the second weekend of the season and deer would still have a pattern then. 
you know, there would still be deer like hitting the soybeans early and stuff. But once that velvet comes off and they start to kind of find their own areas, it really changes. So if I didn't have a buck that I know out of five, you know, out of seven days, five of those days he was in that plot, if I didn't know that, I probably, I would probably be more afraid of bumping him off of that farm than I would be to hunt it. And I would probably, like, let's say I had a food plot where he's been in there two out of seven times in the evening. I would probably be more likely to hunt a transition area between those spots in the morning where, you know, once it got good in daylight and it's late, late morning, I could try to get out of there without, you know, with kind of the natural movements and noises of the day, I would probably try to do that rather than go to that food source where he's only there, let's say 15% of the time, because during those early seasons, it's been my experience that you'll normally see those bucks, the mature bucks, but if you see them, I think it's a 50-50 shot that you'll see them when you're about ready to get down, like they literally step out and you're barely seeing them with the binos and you're like, crap, that's him. And you can't shoot. And now you've got to get down and bump him. And now he's like, okay, well, there's a dude in a tree right down there. (laughs) Um, So yeah, unless I totally think 80% of the time he's a day walker to that field in an early pattern, I'm just going to hold off and I'm going to, maybe try some transition zones in the proximity, but, but definitely not too close. Yeah. It seems like, and I don't know about you, but my personal experience in early season, I've ne- the earliest I've killed a buck is October 20th. And that was like 10 years ago. <laughs> and I mean, I've got some pretty good stuff to hunt and, Yeah, and you know, we plant food plots and we do all that stuff and I'll, it seems like I'll see them, but I, I rarely, for whatever reason, it's like they step out of the cover, they hit the edge, and they just stay there and eat, and they don't move very much. And um, if I was hunting with a gun, it'd be a done deal. Oh, yeah, yeah. But Totally different story. Bow hunting, it's just, man, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm doing something wrong, but I just do not have that good of luck early. Well, I just think it's, I think it's percentage. I think if you hunted early for 10 years, I bet, like I said, one out of 10 years, you might get one during that open week or or have a chance at one. But the other thing too is when you hunt in areas where you know you might see something pretty good during the opening week, but you also might see something that'll blow your mind three weeks later, it's kind of hard. And I've been in the position where I just loved hunting, you know, and I just, I just wanted to be out. And so, when I lived in Wisconsin, I just wanted to hunt all the time, you know, whether it was does or whatever. And I, it's not like I had a, a big buck that I knew I was going after every year. I might see a big deer or get a few pictures of a big deer, but everything was permission. A lot of it was small parcels. And the reality is if you're a, if you're a, multiple ground small parcel type hunter where there's small small parcels around you there's chess pieces that are moving that are completely outside of your ability to control and so you're just kind of you're just playing your best odds you know you you could go out and have everything a hundred percent in your favor and maybe that buck is coming five out of seven nights to that field but you're also hunting a 10 acre piece where 150 yards away that other landowner might have got a few pictures of that buck and he's coming to a stand an hour before dark which is 150 yards away and and that buck gets bumped so there's a lot of variables like that you you really don't understand so for me personally if i want to just hunt i actually get a real kick out of hunting areas that are kind of like i've always wanted to hunt there but I never really have. And I kind of hunt these areas where it would almost be a surprise if something came out that was a shooter. Um, Or I honestly go to spots where if I decide to shoot a doe, like I have no guilt 
like shooting a doe, having to get the doe, having to get it out of there and do all that stuff. Like, I don't feel like I'm burning a key spot. I kind of, I kind of do like all of my wild cards, wild card stands, all of those spots or spots where you can do a hang and hunt. Those are the types of spots that I might utilize more during the early season where it's like, I just want to go out tonight. I just want to go hunt. I want to see some stuff in the wild. I want to do that, but I'm, playing it smart and keeping my ace keep the ace until you have the rest of that hand to put on it you know the right time of year does in the area wind and you know in my opinion like moon phase if i've got those four cards and i have an ace i'm gonna play the hand like i'm playing that hand but if i only have my ace in the wind, but it's not pre-rut. There's no other does around. Don't have the recon. No, I'm just going to keep that in my pocket for a while. Yep. Yeah. Um, I agree with you there. I, I do a lot of the same things and then try to hunt a lot of blinds and box blinds and stuff early season and then get more aggressive and dive in once they start ramping up movement. But I'm, I'm, I'm quickly falling into a, uh, hunting out of blinds type of guy. Um, it was more prominent when I started hunting with Sharon and Harry, like when they started hunting, it just, um, I fell out of a tree from a, a bad, a, a climbing stick that snapped. Sharon fell out of a tree, um, like within one of the first six hunts I ever did with her, um, we were up in Alberta. There was screwing trees. It wasn't our stand. We were, we were hunting with an outfitter up there and just the whole peg slipped out and she fell a long way onto her back. And if she wasn't so small, it could have been really bad. Um, but somehow she like landed on her back and was just like, you know, I told her, wait, wait, you know, let me come down. I, kind of got down there and I'm just like, don't move. You don't know if something's hurt. And somehow or another, she like made it through that fall. But from there on out, I'm like, you know what, if I'm hunting with, with my family, it's ladder stands or blinds. That's it. So I really started doing a way better job of prepping spots that would suit blinds. And then each year, each year I build one, kind of hunting setup that suits a blind and get it in there, build the ground around it, you know, put the food plot there, figure out the wind, kind of figure out, you know, is this a food spot or is this a rut spot or whatever it is. And, you know, that, um, that buck that I shot, uh, actually all three bucks I shot last year, um, here in Iowa were all from a blind. They were all from a blind and you know, that one buck was, you know, nine Oh five in the morning. Um, the other one was at least, at least an hour before dark, but it was on a night where I had the perfect wind. It was pre rut. I think it was like, I, th- I think it might've been Halloween. I can't remember. And the moon was coming up. The full moon was coming up about an hour and a half before daylight or before dark. So I could, I saw the whole moon come up in front of me in the blind and it's up. And then all of a sudden I like, look, and here's this buck out, you know, this freak buck that I'd never even seen before, you know, a total unknown just appears and he's out feeding because, you know, I really feel like those bucks, you know, rise when the moon rises and they, they also, they're on their feet again as it's falling, you know? So I, I tell people like whenever the moon's on the one or the other of the horizon, it's my favorite times to be out. That's for me personally. Um, but it was the same thing. I knew I was on a food source. The wind was not super strong. And in, and in those cases when the wind isn't like stiff, I I say I really get in a blind and um, just try to contain that scent as much as possible and just just focus on that. And then also just having the ability to move more, 
you know, as the older I get and the more things I have to do, the more impatient I get, it's hard to stay still. It's hard not to like, you know, text comes in, reaching in your pocket, checking your phone. Um, I don't know. And, and I just, I've learned for, from big bucks, like, and I've seen them do it where they'll, they'll kind of come out of their little seclusion and they'll get to the point where they can see this whole scenario. So like in the case where I shot um, my first big one last year, it was on a food plot, it was radishes. There were a lot of does frequenting there. It was right at the, right at the edge of pre-rut and rut. I knew one of those does would be coming in. There was a lot of does there. And I'm like, this is when the big bucks come and scent check everything in this field the moon had already rose, had that little bit of wind. I'm like, okay, this, everything's perfect. Well, that buck like kind of came out of this little Creek bottom and I saw him just appear and he was about 10 yards back in the brush and he just came up and he just, he sat so still to where, even though I had seen him at first, I was, I had to pull my binos up and like, look, like, is he still there? And then finally I was able to make him out again and realize he's just sitting there just like a statue, just totally just looking at the field. And the only thing that was moving was his eyes. And all he's doing is just assessing like, what's in this field? Is this all deer? Are there any foreign sounds? Like he's letting it all register. And if I wouldn't have known that in you know, spun around or if I would have lost patience and I would have pulled my binos up when, and he would have been looking right at me, that could have been it. Like the, the hunt may not have even been successful. So movement is honestly, it's, it's as important. Well, it's probably not as important as, as scent, but movement is like next in line. You know, if they see something that doesn't make sense. Those big bucks just think, mm, I can turn and go that way. And I'm in someone else's food plot and there's does over there too, you know? So the blinds for me have just really helped me fidget more. You know what I mean? They're comfortable. Oh yeah. Especially when it gets cold and you know, like you brought up the scent, the scent part, you know, you can go into a food plot and where you'd be hunting in a, a ground blind or a stand, you could have the perfect wind walking in, like you said, but then as that pressure's falling in the evening and that wind starts to settle and everything just starts, your scent just starts dropping. Pushing down. Yeah. I mean, you walk in perfect and then everything's perfect. And then you have a field full of does about prime time, 30 minutes before sunset. <laughs> and then boom, scent just drops and, and the whole field busts. So that's my favorite thing about them is um, getting away with, a lot more scent wise than I've ever been able to. Yeah. They're less maintenance overall. I mean, hundred percent, you know, we talked about everything I have to go through in a stand situation and it really gets hard too. I hunt, I hunt a lot by myself and film, which requires a lot of extra movement, obviously. But if I ever have someone that's here in Iowa hunting, I, I, you know, normally I hunt with them. So there's, two people moving in the tree a lot, you know, and that's one of the things people don't understand. Like if you get a mature deer killed on film, um, that's a, that's a tough thing to do. You know, when there's two people moving around and, and bouncing around and like, you know, I film a lot with, uh, Caleb Copeland and I'm a big guy, just tall and, and broad. Caleb's big too. Like, the two of us in some of the spots where I would, if I had to only be in a tree, it would be not good. I mean, it just wouldn't be good. And then I don't know. I think if you start to acclimate the deer in your area with blinds and they're, you know, the, the the problem with Papa blinds is they're like all of a sudden there and then they're gone in certain areas where you can brush them in good. That's, that's great with turkeys. I don't think it matters at all, but where you're hunting like mature bucks on a, on a plot, like those things need to be there. They need to be in that area and secured and and be down. But with like with the, the muddy blinds or a bigger hard blind, um, they get used to it being there all the time. And then 
what I started doing all the way back when I first moved to Iowa from the very first farm I got to hunt, I put a blind on a old hay wagon. And so the first blinds I hunted weren't like permanent. I would just pull it in and I would honestly, like if I knew I was hunting a field during late season, which I hunted at that time, I normally hunted blinds most during late season because I knew the deer were going to a food source. I'd pull that blind in at the beginning of season and it would just sit at that food source and I wouldn't go by, I wouldn't even hunt it until late season, like three months in, I would go in and hunt it. Everything's used to it. And the other thing I would do, like once I started doing that, I would just randomly, if I ever had to drive into the place and check cameras or whatever, I would just hook onto that thing and just pull it to a new spot and just set it next to another, you know, another food source. And so the deer got used to this thing that I'm pretty sure they relate to farm equipment. Um, and sometimes I'd even leave it hooked up to my tractor. Um, you know, I'd pull that thing in, turn my tractor off and my blind would literally be hooked to the back tie on hitch of the tractor. And then I'd wait until the time was right, slip in there and, and hunt. And if, and if I needed to, to move it because of the wind too, could fire up the tractor, move it a little bit. And it just seems like when those tractors are running, the deer just aren't blowing out. And it gave you a lot of ability to, to move. And then from there I thought, okay, this is working so good. I built a six foot wooden platforms. This is before everything had real nice metal stands that they come on now and uh, build these six foot decks that were about four or five feet off the ground. And I'd put a hay bale on all four corners of it. And the blind would just be sitting on top. Those proved super deadly and then now they've just stayed in that same area and honestly most of the hay bales around them have just like either rotted or been eaten down to the ground but they're just still sitting there fully exposed and they just totally don't even pay them attention yeah we've got to a point where we actually depending on the wind if there's a hot food source we have some blinds on trailers Mm -hmm. and we'll go in early enough we're We'll move it to the opposite side just because of the wind direction. Yep. And the deer, since that blind's been in the field, they it doesn't matter where it's at in the yep. field. They just they it's another it. piece of equipment. Yep. Yeah. Such a such valuable tools. Well, what else do you want to talk about? We got a few more minutes here. Uh, I thought it'd be cool. Last year we did. Was it about the same time when we did a podcast about whitetails? Yeah, it's pretty close to this time. Um, yeah, I think people right now are getting fired up. There's so many people that are really utilizing our educational platforms and asking a lot of questions of like, you know, I'm a first time hunter. Um, you know, how do I get into whitetail hunting? What's some of the things that I need to do? I mean, if we were to give five pointers, what are they? What's number one, brand new to brand new as a deer hunter. You want to go out, you want to have some some success. What do you think is the number one thing you could tell someone? I would say a few things would be find someone who you can ask advice to. And that could be listening to different podcasts, reading up on stuff. I remember when when we started hunting, there wasn't a lot out there to learn from, right? Um, but definitely ask someone. Don't be scared to ask for some assistance when it goes out to, you know, getting out there and, and setting up a farm. And don't be worried to break the bank. I mean, don't don't think you have to break the bank to get out there in the field. Yeah, you do not have to do that. You don't have to go spend thousands and thousands of dollars to get out there. To, with whatever budget you have, buy what you can, and just get out there and enjoy it. And a lot of people will actually it'll play to your advantage. Like if I go and knock on a door, um, I'm not saying everyone recognizes me. But if I go knock on a door, there's certainly people that are going to look at me like, bitch, you don't need a place to hunt. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas when I'd like ride my bike up to someone's house and just be like, you know, pulling my, my, uh, my PSE fireflight or whatever out of my, you know, out of my, I think it was just made of, it was like a zip up case. So it might as well be made of like a bed sheet or something and just said, you know, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm learning to bow hunt and, um, you know, is there any way I can, you know, maybe hunt here or, you know, can you tell me if you've seen any deer? 
a lot of times that plays into your advantage because, you know, I'm a sucker. I love introducing people to hunting. There's a lot of people out there that if you ask and say, hey, I'm brand new to it. And believe me, some of my closest friends will say like, um, hey, man, uh, this guy lives by you, really wants to learn to bow hunt. Is there any way, like, what's the way you can point him in a direction? I know um, our wardens here in Iowa, I know a ton of them, and they love getting pe- – like, they love teaching people how to – how to go about getting into bow hunting. So definitely ask and let it play to your advantage. If you're brand new to it, like don't be afraid to say, Hey, I'm, I'm brand new to this. I want to, I want to actually go like field to fork for the first time. I want to know where my food comes from. I'd love to shoot a deer. And honestly, going up to some of these farmers and saying, you know, I'm not a trophy hunter. I'm, you know, I would, I'd be, I'd be thrilled if I shot a buck, but I would be, you know, I want to, I just want the experience. I want to be able to, to get, you know, some back straps for my first time. You know, if there's any way you can, you know, help me out and let, you know, show me how to get a doe or something like those are really good ends. And from there, your personality kind of takes it to that next step. Um, all right. So that's number one, definitely good advice. Uh, number two, I'm going to say, and I mentioned it earlier, the wind. So no matter what you're hunting, like rule number one to hunting is the animal's nose is other than like a turkey, but let's talk deer, elk, pigs, bears, doesn't matter. Their nose is their number one asset. So if they smell you, if they honestly, some of them, if they smell where you've walked, like if you, if you walk directly across this food source to get to your stand when you could have maybe found a way to get to it without laying all your scent down on there, um, that is going to majorly increase your odds. So when you look at a spot and you say, okay, you know, this farmer, he's going to let me hunt for the first time, gave me permission, told me I can come over, hunt over here. And these deer come to this cornfield. He kind of said they come out of this corner over here a lot. Think, okay, what is the predominant wind in this area? Um, I know for here, like Northwest wind, you can count on that probably 40% of the time. A south wind, you can count on about 40% of the time. And then every now and then you get a freaking east wind. But in saying that, I always have one spot that is set up for that day where you have an east wind. Because even if it's not a prime spot, you don't want to wreck your prime spot because it's a Saturday and you have off work and you want to go hunt but it's an east wind and you go sit in your stand and your scent's blowing right out across this cornfield where he told you everything comes out to. So figure out where that wind is, make sure you play the wind and, uh, you know, put up a stand where your wind is going to have the least impact on anything. Or if you're, even if you're still hunting and you're not hunting on a stand or out of a blind, if you're out elk hunting, if you're out mule deer hunting or antelope hunting, just realize I need to know where the wind's blowing all the time. I need a little wind checker. If I'm going to try to stalk this elk that's out there, what way do I have to navigate so that the wind is never touches his nose and you'll be good. All right. What's number three? Number three for me, looking back at when I first started hunting, was just slow down when you (laughs) when you get an opportunity nine times out of ten you have more time to get that shot off than you think and i feel like you know me generally you know just me back then and then new people that i've taken out it's like oh my god there he is there he is you know i'm gonna draw back and then shoot yep and i think just relax breathe and it goes back to practice too but try to make everything as fluid and as natural as possible and take your time and bury that pen and just let it go. Don't yep. rush it. Yep. Yeah. That's awesome advice because yeah, I, I, uh, I, I lost it like all composure flushed right out of toilet, like turbo speed too. When I first got going, uh, I remember getting so jacked up that I couldn't pull my bow back because like every bit of adrenaline that my body could possibly produce just 
dumped into my body and I just fully seized up. I don't know how, when you have that much adrenaline, you seize up because you hear of like people that could lift cars off their kids or whatever, you know, and like crashes. But I just went full, like, Oh my God, I feel like someone tied my bow string to my riser and I cannot pull it, pull it back. And yeah, if I would have just kind of just said, okay, what's, what's my shot routine, you know, where's my shot going to be? Okay. My shot's going to be right there. What's the distance check is my sight set to that distance check. Okay. From there, what's my shot routine? What's my shot routine? You know, stance, grip, anchor, peep sight, my pins on the target, like whatever your shot process is, just think of every step instead of thinking, I'm going to get my first deer. Because if you think I'm going to get my first deer, all those other things we talked about are going to be somewhere in the subconscious. And if you haven't done them enough to where the subconscious runs them systematically without you thinking about it, it's going to be a disaster. Um, okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to come in here and say for number four, um, I want to tell people, um, minimize pressure. Um, and this falls into several categories. Um, so we talked about how different animals react to pressure. So what you need to remember is, even if you don't have a chance today, you don't want to blow your chance for tomorrow. You don't want to, you know, always remember, okay, if my hunt's over today, like I might hunt tomorrow or, or another hunter might be hunting tomorrow. You know, I've had people where we've gone out on a, on a hunt and we're hunting somewhere, you know, maybe we've been with an outfitter and we get to the very end of the hunt and they realize I'm not getting a tag. And so then it's just like, you know, pop out of the blind, start talking loud, you know, and you kind of just blow this whole thing out. Um, just always remember just because you can't see something or you can't see an animal that's around, you should always assume they're there and you should always assume something can hear you if you're talking in a normal voice. So just impact imprint pressure those three things just keep them to like level one out of ten so when you pull up don't slam your car door don't talk loud next to the truck you know ease that door shut use an outdoor voice whisper a little bit and you know go into that spot try to recognize okay am I going to walk directly across this food plot when the all I want all my deer in my food plot? Am I going to walk across this with my boots or is there another way I can get in or Hey, in this particular spot, it's public land. I got to go quite a ways in. It's pretty loud when I walk. What if I take a bike? You know, all these are little things like figure out a way to where you're the quietest going in. You're the quietest coming out. Always assume something can see you that you can't see. Something can hear you that you can't hear. And even if you don't have a chance today, if you just slip out of there just easy enough, maybe they really won't know what you are. And then tomorrow or the next weekend when you come back, you might be able to seize the moment and, you know, have the best hunt of your life. I think that's a good one. Are we going to do number five or not? Yeah, got to. Okay, so number five. I think I think number five for me would be always analyze why something happens a certain way and take accountability. Because I think there's so many people out there that, you know, they might go sit in a tree and those deer skirted him a certain way or a buck came in and, and winded him. Well, why did that happen? Why did they skirt me? Why did they win me? What could I have done differently for why my, where, you know, where did I hang this stand? Um, and then also when things don't go right, why, and even when things go good, why did I get that shot? You know, start thinking of all of those things. And, um, you know, I, I had a good friend who's probably listening to this and he's <laughs> going to be listening to this. And, you know, he went through a stage where there was five or six bucks that he had opportunities on and it didn't work out. Yep. And the, one of the last ones that happened on, I said, man, you got to start asking yourself why, Yeah. why is it not working out? 
Yep. And and there's a reason why certain things happen a certain way. So just whether it's a something went right or something went wrong, always analyze the situation and why you had the outcome you had. Yeah. Like some for some people it could be because let's just say five hunts in a row you went out it's prime time, sun's going down, and all of a sudden you see something and everything starts to move in. You know you're going to get a shot, so you try to ease up, you know, get into your thing and try to reach for that bow, and then boom, you're pegged. You know, it's like some of those things are all part of a certain similarity. So if you see deer start to come into that food plot or you know, you know, if you've, well, if you got a camera out and you know from 4.45 to 5.30, prime movement time, right? You need to maybe be seated in your stand for the first part of the hunt, but by 4.30, you're within 15 minutes of knowing when stuff's starting to move or when you see that first deer appear, like from there on out, you're like, okay, I need to stand back to the tree, bow in hand. One of the things for me is people not being ready to shoot. Like that's a common denominator that I've had people that are just like, man, I can just, you know, I can just never get it done. And it's, it's like, dude, you've had to reach over and pull your bow off of a thing that's out away from you. You know, I'm always knocked. My bow is either close enough to me to where I can get it without like exposing myself, um, you know, like outside of my silhouette, so to speak, or it's on my lap. And especially like if I'm going to rattle a hundred percent, I'm as soon as I rattle, I'm ready to shoot. Like I'm not going to rattle and then sit down after two minutes. And then all of a sudden a buck comes in and, and I'm not ready. So yeah, identify like if I made a mistake, what is that? Learn from that. Like that's, for me, I think the best tool I have for being a teacher is how much I screw up because everything I teach is just based off something that caused me to miss, caused me to lose an animal, caused me to not be successful. Um, you name it. Like everything I talk about is just based off experience of not doing you know, not doing what I should and learning from it. And I think if you do that, you're probably good to go. I think it's all good stuff, man. Have fun. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate you coming on. And uh, hey, everybody, I'm glad to be back at it. we got some awesome, awesome stuff coming for all of you here the second part of this year. Knock on, everybody. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing. Knockonarchery.com.